Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of the Publisher Lab. Today is a very exciting day for me because today is the day we welcome back someone that we've been teasing for a while that would be back, Miss Shelby Kang. Shelby, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. For a second there, I almost thought you were going to introduce me as Pickle. <laughs> <laughs> for those that don't know, I don't know if we've ever talked about it on the podcast, but you have a nickname uh, internally here and we, we call you Pickle. Yes. Do you want to do you want to share why it's it's up to you? I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll let you guys guess. <laughs> yeah, we'll get we'll let you. I don't know if you want to do that, but we, yeah, if you would like to guess, you can certainly uh, guess. Tweet at us, Adizo, if you'd like to guess Pickle's name. Maybe we'll give away some 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 type of prize or the motivation, I guess, behind the name Pickle. Yeah. But maybe we'll uncover this in layers over the course of oh. a series of podcasts, right? <laughs> we'll have to see. So um, one of the things uh, our listeners will have been gotten used to here recently is uh, Whitney and I kind of broke things down together. And one of the things I've liked in, in the past that we've done on our podcast, Shelby, is you sort of surprised me with the kind of topics that you've picked out of the news. And we're returning to that format in a bit of a way. And so for those of you that are probably wondering right now, like, where's Whitney? Or where's the producer, Alan, that rarely rarely has a chance to speak up? Uh, they're actually in Cleveland at the content uh, marketing world. So it's not that we've necessarily booted uh, Whitney out of the podcast. It just so happens that she's gone the week that Shelby is joining us again. Yeah, so moving forward, I don't know if you'll be hearing more of me or we'll kind of switch Well, we decided that you guys might just kick me out. Oh. <laughs> if, our, if our listeners would like that, I would love nothing more. But that being said, uh, we have promised that you and Whitney would actually uh, physically battle over <laughs> over the spot. That'll be for our 100th episode. It'll also come with some video <laughs> and an exotic explains. Um, yeah, those would be a really, that, that'd be a great synergy between all of our different uh, broadcasts medias but um more likely it'll uh, the podcast in the future will include a combination of all three of us so yeah don't you worry if there's one particular member of the crew that's your favorite and this is actually podcast 97 now so we're close to 100 wow that was the prediction uh whitney and i were actually trying to count down to figure out if you were actually going to be back for episode 100 but actually i believe on the current cadence that we're on that john cole will actually be joining us here uh, in the United States, right around the time that we'll record episode 100, so we'll literally have everyone from the band back together that uh, that you know loyal listeners have will have heard over the years. Myself, John, you, Whitney, who knows? Yeah, even maybe some other guests we really don't know. Maybe Kanye West. I mean, maybe. I mean, just maybe. I'm not saying that he's coming on, uh, but we're not saying he's not coming but on. We're not saying that either, right? <laughs> All right. So the first thing I wanted to start with this week is um, an article from What's New in Publishing about how the New York Times is struggling on their digital front. So although they recently reported that they've reached a record high number of paid digital and print subscribers, um, so that's over 4.7 million subscribers total, the publisher said that it expects digital advertising revenue to decline by high single digits in the current quarter. So much of this expected decline comes from the fact that their digital subscription slowed um, by 12% last quarter, and that leads to a decline in operating profits too. So the New York Times is also facing some struggles on the social front. So Newswhip, um, which tracks how billions of people engage with stories across social networks, recently reported that the New York Times 
fell out of the top three rankings of top publishers on Facebook. So they were pushed down by Daily Mail. Um, so if you look at the social followings on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, the New York Times, although they still have huge followings, their follower and engagement growth has been plateauing. Um, so even with this expected decline, the New York Times is still making progress towards their goal of 100 million total subscribers by 2025. But I think it's kind of a good example of how, you know, that saying, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Um, and besides the reasons listed, are there any kind of things that you see going on in the publishing or digital space that would lead to a decline in ad revenue? So, I mean, there's a handful of things. And I think... Um I think in in large part one of the things I think when it comes to digital subscriptions, you know this is um, this is something I was talking to some members. I, I had an article published a couple weeks ago in the in um, uh, the DCN Association had posted it, and we talked a little bit uh, with them about uh, subscriptions and just how many uh, I would just say of you know the top one hundred uh, news publishers, uh, print news publishers. I mean that are also doing obviously digital uh, and how much they've they've invested in, in digital subscriptions. And it's really, if you break down the statistics, what you're talking about is a very small number of publishers fighting over a very small number of people actually willing to pay for subscription news. And the thing on top of that is that with every subscription that one of those very small number of people buys, that essentially it exponentially decreases their chance of buying a second subscription to something else. So it's a big battle over a very small number of things. Um, so that's, it's tough. But I think a lot of publishers have felt like this is, this is the battle worth winning, meaning it's the only revenue model that's ultimately very lucrative, that all the rest are kind of a crap shoot and you scrape by. And the more and more I dig into this, the more that I am of the belief, and this is a belief, it's but I can back it up with some objective evidence, but I'm of the belief that this is a little bit of the sky is falling in terms of a lot of the privacy regulation stuff, a lot of the targeting stuff. Um, forever, we've heard the things like, oh, ad rates are going down, but that's we've seen that not to be the case programmatically. Um, we keep seeing advertisers move more and more of their budgets away from um, TV and outdoor and things like that, right? So... Um, it begs the question of are, if advertisers are going to spend more on digital and programmatically ad rates are going up, why would we believe that ad rates are going to go down or that in this chain of things that publishers are going to lose value? Well, Google and many others have talked a lot about targeting and privacy and things like that and the value of being able to retarget visitors. But my whole thing is there seems to be a lot of people in the ecosystem in general that aren't publishers that seem really, really uh, tied to making publishers believe that without them that there would be no money to be made. And I would argue that if you remove everyone between advertisers and publishers, especially digital publishers, what you would find is that advertisers really want to reach their audience and they don't really... Well, they care how because they want to do it well, but ultimately publishers are in position to provide more and more value as more and more dollars move digitally. And so I don't know that subscription revenue needs to go down. Um, I do think that just a lot of the disruption in the space is causing a lot of other parties to try to figure out how they can do some cash grabbing. 
And um, yeah, that worries me a little bit that publishers are being misled or made to believe that um, their value in this chain isn't is, is is growing less. But I think actually it's more. And the the fact that you're seeing declines right now, I think tell me that there's a lot of people that are worried that publishers are going to figure that out. Yeah. Okay. I think this is a good segue into my next topic. You mentioned Google and Apple tracking and all of that. Um, So the next thing I wanted to cover was, I believe it's an article from Adweek um, about how publishers are kind of grumbling about Google's uh, recent ad targeting research. So I'm, I'm really happy you brought this up. I was hoping this was where we were going. Yes. Yeah, so um, on August 22nd, Google released a string of blogs um, related to its plans around tightening data privacy. So among them was a set of research results um, conducted using data from 500 global publishers that run programmatic ads. And this is via their Google Ad Manager. So the results stated that when cookies aren't used for ad targeting, publishers lose an average of 52% of programmatic ad revenue, while news publishers lose even higher at 62%. So this is according to Google. Um, So the clear implication of the blogs is kind of to take a swipe at um, Apple's Safari browser. We've talked about this, the Intelligent Tracking Prevention, or um, ITP. So the reaction to Google's research is a bit mixed. Um, In general, it seems like publishers have agreed that those figures are pretty much in line with the average revenue losses they've seen. But on the other hand, several major publishers have also stressed that these figures have been taken out of context and used as a weapon to kind of further Google's own cause. So although the estimated revenue loss from Apple Safari cookies have dropped um, to similar levels, that revenue hasn't really disappeared from thin air. The results of the report were aggregated, and therefore there's going to be some variation in the results depending on the publisher. But what are your thoughts on this? Is it Google protecting themselves yeah. or... So this is really where... Uh, so when I said I have a belief, it, it really stems from a lot of this and where I think the narratives are being created. In this case, Google is creating a narrative and they're a pretty strong party to create one. Um, this study, the reason why I say that is 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 it's very misleading and um, at best, it's inaccurate and at worst, it's deceptive. Um, and Google are our friends, let's remember. But um, my point in saying this is that the study was based on the difference between retargeting, so personalized ads based on previous user cookied behavior, and contextual targeting, meaning like uh, you're an advertiser is targeting someone that's searching for uh, outdoor lawn equipment, and the website uh, that the ads are displaying on has the word outside lawn equipment on the page. That could be a good example of contextual targeting. So they were saying there's this big discrepancy in between what an advertiser is willing to pay a publisher for that. Duh. I mean, we kind of know that. Personalized retargeting ads are better. They are better. They are better for users. They are better for publishers. They are better for advertisers. They just are. People misunderstand privacy, and that is killing the cookie. And we've talked about this a little bit here recently. It's very unfortunate. If people maybe understood why they saw an ad, so... Um, I'm seeing this shoe ad not because my phone is listening to me and an advertiser heard me say a shoe. It's because my Google Calendar is associated with um, my phone and I have tracking set up on Google Maps and I went to Runner's World yesterday um, 
you know, in, in my car, typed it into maps or something along those lines. So even though I might be like, ah, there's no way, you know, I just said shoes because I went into the shoe store. I'd have no other way. I haven't searched on my phone. Well, Google is attached to your phone and that's how that happened. So that explanation, I think, would actually really help people in understanding um, why they're seeing certain ads. But I think if you look into the future, the, the concern that they're trying, that I think Google is trying to create a narrative around is that if personalized ads go away in some way, that you, publisher, are going to lose so much money. But that's not true. If we go back to the things that I was talking about before and that publishers have a value, advertisers want to reach them, they're not going to say, you know what, I can't do personalized ads anymore. I'm going to go back to radio, TV, and billboards because the attribution was so great there. I had such a great idea of how personalized my ads were on those platforms. Digital is still way better for attribution. So if personalized ads go away, are contextual ads going to remain the same value? No. It's like saying airplane tickets cost more than boat tickets. You'd rather take an airplane than a boat because it's faster, right? Well, let's imagine that none of the airplanes worked anymore. I'm willing to bet the cost of boat travel goes up. Why? Because it becomes all of a sudden, by default, a better form of travel. And I think what you're going to see here is because Apple has disrupted things quite a bit in their banning of cookies and many others going along the same same path, I think Google and many others are trying to say, listen, we're about to spin some stuff up that's going to be better than cookies or just as good, and you're going to need us, publishers, to make sure that you don't lose all this money. And I think publishers and advertisers can both say, nah, we're good. We'll find each other anyways. Uh, and that's really hard without Google, and so they'll probably push through whatever it is they're going to push through. But I think it's very important that publishers understand that um, that's not a fair assessment, that um, digital ads are going to increase in value regardless of whatever mechanism is being pushed out there. The best form, the best ROI for an advertiser is going to pay whatever the, you know, pay publishers the best, bottom line. Right. At the end of the day, it's always about supply and demand. Um, the last thing I have on deck today, I kept it a little short for my sake, just because <laughs> it's the first podcast recording um, since I've been back, but Publishers are delaying series for YouTube, Facebook, and Snapchat to cash in on lucrative holiday season budgets. Um, so this is about video publishers, but I feel like it can kind of maybe apply to, um, you know, written content. So we've talked in the past episodes about how there's been a recent shift from video publishers um, from one-off videos to now more episodic videos on platforms like YouTube, Facebook, and Snapchat. Um, so this isn't the only TV-styled programming strategy that publishers have adopted. So similar to how TV networks air specials around holidays um, and in the fourth quarter when there's an influx of ad dollars, publishers are starting to adjust their strategies specifically for this more lucrative period. Um, so this includes withholding shows on platforms until the fourth quarter or even waiting to debut until the fourth quarter. So... Q4 is historically when advertisers spend the bulk of their budgets. So do you think that other digital publishers who write content can kind of take this? And then where do you draw the line between, you know, consistently putting out content mm -hmm. and, you know, working with a seasonality? So, I, I, I mean, I think it depends on the publisher. So uh, uh, Larissa Quintero, who is from Complex Media, she uh, works in SEO there. Uh, she's going to talk a little bit about this at our upcoming Publtelligence in San Francisco on October 11th, and that's kind of this balance between SEO and editorial um, and how they manage that at Complex, because I think the larger you are, the harder this becomes, meaning 
you know, you have writers and content teams that you want to create consistent stuff. You have, you know, maybe a revenue area of the business that's like, like guys, let's hold the best stuff till Q4, blast that all out, get a lot of traffic, make the most amount of money from the same amount of content. And then you have the SEO world, you know, folks basically just saying like, let's create content that's ultimately going to generate traffic over time. So how do you marry all those things together? And I think the strategy that I really like um, is you always want to be creating content. One of the things that I think we've seen consistently is the publishers that grow the most year over year based on our studies are the ones that are A, consistently creating content, but even more so than that, creating the most, um, creating basically the most content consistently. So if you just crack out crappy content, um, you know, every day, I think we all know that that's not a winning strategy. So I'm going to add that caveat. But that said, the, there's this direct correlation between the number of articles published and then just general traffic year over year. Um, if you're a publisher that feels like you can crank that stuff out and get an audience like fast, meaning I put out an article, I have an audience that will read that article tomorrow. Q4, it makes total sense to like load up and spend a decent amount of time maybe doing more content or even saving content for there. Otherwise, I'd be cranking it out and getting it out there now so that some of these articles that you right now have the potential to generate things like organic traffic or referral traffic. So that would be my thought. Seems a little bit odd to be thinking about like Q4 and the holidays, but I'm sure it's well, right around the corner. You know what drives me crazy? So this is the beginning of September uh, right now, and there's already like I, a month ago, I, w I went into Home Goods, which is like a home... Uh, Furniture. Home decor, yeah, kind of store. And they already had Halloween stuff up, and I'm like... It's it's months and months away. There's Halloween stuff up now, and we're almost two months away from Halloween. Imagine if you started getting, like, you're going to start seeing, like, holiday decorations for late December and things like that coming up here, like, soon, too. That stuff doesn't even happen two months. I feel like, in general, as a society, we're getting more and more forward, and I think that comes from corporate America, where a lot of companies start their you know, next year planning in the middle of July. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I'm, I'm opposed to it. I've got a weird hypothesis that it's all centered around Starbucks drinks. I was getting ready to say that. The, <laughs> the, it's like, how quickly is, how soon is too soon for pumpkin spice lattes? Well, it's already out. I know. Well, it was out in like, I feel like at the end of July, they were like, here it comes almost just any day. Now, August is soon enough. <laughs> So you mentioned Larissa and how she'll be speaking at our upcoming Poptelligence event in San Francisco. Can we talk about some of the other speakers that we've got lined up and kind of what we've got going on for the day? Sure. We still have uh, a few open seats. It's a very hard ticket to get because the, um, the seats are limited because of the space that we have at Google this year. But it's in San Francisco, October 11th, which is a Friday. Uh, you can just Google Poptelligence and uh, you can find the application to attend. Um, the event is, it's all day long. It's at Google. Uh, you get to hear from a lot of great experts in the world of publishing and SEO. Uh, I mentioned Larissa. Uh, we have a gentleman named Richard joining us from the Wall Street Journal. Um, we're hoping that Carolyn from ESPN Disney will join us from last time. She, she would, last time she wowed everyone with her ability to do Q&A. And I think last time we were like, she needs her own spot. So we'll, we'll try to utilize her as much as possible if we have her again. Um, Sarah Jurdy, I think it's Jurdy or Jurd. Um, from Adweek is joining us. She is a uh, digital media reporter, a really good one that we pull a lot of articles from for this show. 
Uh, so she'll be talking about industry trends and topics. And uh, we have a lot of other really good publishers sharing information about how they sell sponsored content to brands. And uh, Tyler, actually, Tyler, 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 who's been on the podcast before, um, and actually his topic stems from kind of uncovering his really unique way of um, uh, selling sponsored content that he shared on the podcast. He kind of dived deeper into how he's done that um, in, in the presentation that he gives at Publtelligence. So, yeah, anyone that listens to the show is welcome to apply and try to try to make it to the event. Yep. Well, that's all I have for this week. It goes the same for me. It's it's good to have you back, Pickle. And uh, I'll be very interested to hear from our listeners if they're able to figure out why we call you Pickle. And uh, I doubt they will, but hopefully over the course of the next couple shows, we'll be able to peel that back and, and reveal to everyone exactly why. Yeah. If anyone guesses it correctly, we'll definitely send you a little swag bag or something. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, we can send you a swag bag for sure. So... We want to thank everyone for joining us on another episode of the Publisher Lab.